Good morning, everyone. Oh, wow, we can do so much better than that. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, my name is Tim, for those of you that are visiting with us this morning, and we are going through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're on the seventh chapter. We're going verse by verse through that. And before we begin, though, or as we begin, uh, we have a six-word sentence that we have been memorizing in order to better understand what we should value as a community of believers. And those six words are... You ever watch the Peanuts cartoon and whenever the adults talk, it's... That's pretty much what I just heard. So we have it up on the slide, so we're going to do it all together. You had no idea this was a participation service, did you? It is. You are participating. So let's recite this together. One, two, three. Wisdom is correctly applied biblical knowledge. And we have seen over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes, through the first six chapters, how Solomon, being blessed by God to have this incredible wisdom and knowledge and understanding and application of God's word, how he values that more than anything else. In chapter 7, as well as chapter 10, it really looks like the book of Proverbs. And the book of Proverbs is basically verse by verse, just quick witty sayings about God's truth in a way that we're supposed to grab onto, easy to memorize, easy to visualize, easy to remember. And so in chapter 7 and chapter 10, Solomon kind of goes into that mode of sharing Little statements of wisdom, nuggets of truth. And when you look at the book of Proverbs, there are generally three types of Proverbs, three ways in which God communicates his truth in this sense. The first is he uses Proverbs as a comparison. He will say A versus B, or A is a lot like B, or you have A and B and they are similar but they use phrases in order to compare and contrast sometimes. So that's the first type of Proverbs we have. The second type of Proverbs that Solomon uses is a word of warning, where he says, watch out for A. Whatever, A is in a lot of trouble this morning, but watch out for A. So it's a warning. It's pay attention to this. Don't fall to this. Watch out for this. Be careful of this, whatever A might be. So it's a warning statement. And then sometimes Proverbs as an individual verse is a consideration verse, meaning you need to think about A. In all the things that you're thinking about, make sure you spend time thinking about A. You need to consider it because there is something incredibly weighty and important behind the meaning and words that Solomon is sharing with us. So what we're going to be doing today in chapter 7, and we'll do this again in chapter 10 when we get there in three weeks, we are going to kind of divide the chapter up into comparison proverbs, verses and sayings, warning statements, and then considering statements. So that means it may not go verse 1, 2, well, I'll tell you, it's not going to go verse 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, because we're going to take these as big groups of comparisons, of warnings, and things to consider. So we are going to start in chapter 7, starting in verse 1, the very first part of verse 1, and verse 11 and 12. So we're going to be kind of looking at three verses here, a part of a verse, and then verse 11 and 12, because they all talk about the same thing, that there is a difference between honor and wealth. 
And we're talking about depending upon wealth, not the fact that you have money, but that money is your God, your idol, your all in all, that everything in your life boils down to how much you have more than the other person. So Solomon is going to give us some incredibly good insight regarding how to value wealth. And he starts out in verse 1 of chapter 7, just the first part of it, which is called 1A. It says this, a good name is better than precious ointment. Now, precious ointment is just a beautiful word that talks about wealth and power and extravagance. He says a good name is better than that. Character is better than that. Having a name that is honored and respected is better than that than a name that is considered foolish or someone who is bent on anger or addictions or trouble or strife. A good name is better than wealth, better than power, better than prestige, better than having a good name. Someone's character should be known before their stuff. And it's not just their character, but good character. He says in verse 11 and 12, which are talking about the same thing, wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. So he's talking, there's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with inheritance. We've talked about this almost every week that Solomon brings it up because it's such a strong influence in our lives, money, stuff, that he has to remind us constantly, be on guard trusting in money, trusting in stuff, trusting in what you have or being upset that you don't have something that other people have. It is better to have that inheritance combined with wisdom, correctly understanding and applying God's word. Because in doing so, you see things clearly. So it's not against wealth or inheritance, but it's against depending upon that spite of God. Verse 12, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. I love how Solomon says this. Money does have a sense of security to it. When you have plenty of money in the bank account, nothing's going to touch it, you do have security. Sometimes you take risks, sometimes you don't take risks, but you have a sense of, you know what, I can easily sleep tonight because I know the basic things are taken care of. I got it. But Solomon says it is far better, what does he say? To have that wisdom, have an advantage of knowledge is that wisdom that preserves the life of him who has it. He sees that connection that when you have wisdom, you have a protected life. Just as people trust in their stuff protecting them, when you have a right understanding of God, a clear understanding of God and his word and how to apply it in your lives, that is protection. And I would say God is the only protection that you need because he is the only one that can actually fulfill the promise of I will never leave you nor forsake you. No one will snatch you out of my hands. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. He gives guarantees of his protection. Money doesn't guarantee protection because money, we make it up. We put value on it. We assign its worth. God, he assigns his own worth, his own value. And he says it is far better. It's like being protected by a fortune, by everything humanly possible, but I preserve your life. So there's that contrast. 
comparison between A and B, wisdom, honor, a good name, a good character, versus depending solely upon wealth. Back to verse 1. We didn't finish all of verse 1. We have the second part of verse 1, which is called 1B. And it says, And the day of death, then the day of birth. He's talking about, we have to kind of understand the first part of verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment. So, the day of death is better than the day of birth. Wow. Are you sure he doesn't have that switched? Because don't we often celebrate births with praise and joyous, you know, joy? I mean, it's just exciting to celebrate someone's birth. I mean, you get presents. You have holidays. You get a cake or a pie. If you're lucky, you get a pie. Because pies are so much better than cakes. Amen? I mean, a strawberry rhubarb pie. I tell you, you bring me a strawberry rhubarb pie, what do you want me to do for you? It is that simple. Just, just name it. I will grant your wish. But we rarely celebrate death. But Solomon, if we remember everything he's been saying beforehand, that a life without God, a life void of true wisdom and knowledge and understanding, a life void of Jesus Christ, a life void of understanding and holding on to his mercy and grace and tenderness and forgiveness, a life void of that, you cannot wish for death soon enough because this life is absolutely terrifyingly hard and filled with frustrations if God is not the king of your life and Christ the savior of your heart. And so Solomon says it's far better in that case that your life is short than your life is just beginning to be lived under the sun without God. He also says in verse 2, another comparison. Mourning versus feasting, or sadness versus feasting. Listen to verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. All right, he's going to have to really apply this for us, help us understand it. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. I feel, in general terms, that we soften the effect of death. We soften it in that, um, you know, our common practice is to embalm someone and to put them in a beautiful dress or suit, to lay them in a casket, and to make it look as presentable as possible. We know they're dead, but wow, we do a really good job hiding the fact of that and lessening the impact of it. Um, very good friend of mine, a strong believer, a deacon and an elder in a church, a great godly man, great godly family. His father, though, on the other hand, was an unbeliever. And his father had a long, long history of abuse, um, alcohol abuse. I mean, he, he would go through a, a case, 24 bottles of vodka in a given week. I mean, he was, he was far gone. And even though he was a successful businessman, and when he died, my, my buddy said, I have two choices. I have, because all of, all of his dad's friends were unbelievers, unbelievers and just 
from his perspective, pretty wicked people. No understanding of God. They lived for themselves. They were incredibly wealthy. Pretty much the kind of person that Solomon is warning you not to be. This guy was, and all of his friends were like that as well. So my friend, knowing that, if he made it overtly Christian, no one would come to the funeral. So he said it was going to be a regular funeral. There'd be some religious things, but it wasn't going to be one of these, okay, the preacher gets up there and just hammers everybody in the crowd for 20 minutes. Uh, So what Dave decided to do was to present his dad, I think it was seven or eight days after he died, with zero embalming. Zero makeup. Zero change of clothes. What he died in is what he was in the casket. And I wasn't there. We were out of town. We, we weren't even living there with him. But Dave describes this as you walk into the funeral home and it was the most pungent smell imaginable. I've never been around a smell like that. But Dave says it was horrific. And everyone asked him, why'd you do that to your dad? Why why didn't you take care of him? And Dave's response and the preacher's response was, well, this is death. This is exactly how he lived. He's dead. And this is what death really is. But we, in America and other places, we have hidden ourselves from the smell, stench, and ugliness of what death looks like. And we experience it. We experience it behind makeup and pleasureful pictures and flowers and smells and and all of the ickiness of death is taken care of. Not in that case, though. Everyone who walked away from that funeral realized the stench and the sight of what living a life without God truly looks like on the inside. They saw it experienced it for themselves. And so Solomon, not thinking of that, obviously, but thinking in case of, well, you have these people who are just partying all the time, full of festivals, full of events, full of occupying their time with feasting and food and drinks and parties and music and just celebration after celebration that they completely forget about the reality that will hit them one day, death. And the horror of it, the stench of it, the reality of it. And we have dedicated whole industries to remove ourselves from how unpleasant death looks like, smells like, and feels like. That Solomon says it's better to have a right circumspect life or better circumspect understanding of the reality of life. Yes, there are celebrations and there are festivals and there's time to feast, yes. But there's also a time for mourning, a time to really understand the value of your relationship with someone else before it's too late. And if you ignore that completely, you miss out on challenging your own heart and life with the reality that one day you too will die. So many people are just filled with so much partying that they never even grasp that reality. Uh, Moving on, another contrast or comparison, sorrow and laughter. Pretty similar to verse 2. Verse 3 and 4, sorrow 
is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is to the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth or the house of partying, the house of wealth. Again, this is a perspective of reality. We can hide behind entertainment and fashion and health and wealth to the point where we ignore the realities that we have to give an account to God. We have to stand before his throne one day. And if my life has been so focused on partying and entertainment and and ignoring it, I'm going to have a harsh reality one day where God says, hey, you had all that partying, all that happiness, all that fun, all that entertainment, all that occupying of your mind. Well, guess what? I'm requiring of you your life today. Give me an account. And I don't think you want to go through how many parties you hosted, how many parties you threw, how many karaoke karaoke songs you knew. I don't think you want to go through that. I think you want to be honest and say, I knew this day was coming, so I prepared myself. I fell at the feet of the cross, and I loved Jesus with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I depend completely upon him for my salvation. Not one good thing do I bring you, but you have made me good in your eyes because of Christ. You can tell them about all the Super Bowl parties you went to, and it's meaningless. will account to nothing. And so that's why Solomon says it's so much better to be in a house where there is sadness and sorrow and mourning and a right understanding of who we are before God than to entertain ourselves to death. He continues in verse uh, 5 and 6, rebuke is better than praise, another comparison contrast. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. So here's another stark reality contrast for us to understand that sometimes it's not just good, but it's right to be rebuked. I don't think any of us in a sane mind says we love being disciplined. We love being corrected. Oh, please, officer, would you stop me because I'm going six miles over the speed limit? Please, 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 correct me, challenge me, stop me from doing this. None of us are wishing for that. But Solomon says, the wise individual, one who has at the heart of his existence loving God and loving others, has at the heart of his existence acknowledging God and acknowledging his grace, that person desires when they are in error to be corrected. Now, we do it in truth and love, and and we have his Holy Spirit leading and guiding us, we have his word directing us, and we have the church guarding us and challenging us. But if we were void of correction, if we resisted all forms of discipline, this would be a chaotic world. And so Solomon says it's far better for a person to listen to the wisdom of correction and do it than to have all the laughing, partying that you want. And he illustrates it by means of an illustration that I don't naturally grasp or handle. And despite the fact that I'm wearing a flannel shirt, I am not an outside person. If you depended upon me to start a fire, 
No, if, if I can't find it on an app, it's not happening. So when he talks about, in verse 6, for his crackling thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools, this also is vanity. I had to look that up. I had to study it. I had to get a grasping of it because that is not the world that I live in. I, I love living in a bed, on a bed in a house with walls. And, and What this has to do with, my understanding is there are certain plants, trees, bushes of some sort, thorns in this case, that may have lots of flash and fire and smoke, but very little heat. Very little heat. And to be experienced in the outdoors world, you probably should know the difference between good wood to burn that gives you heat and wood that just, boop, just a flash or just sound. And so that's what he's saying is you know how some things just have a sound to it? Has no value in the end. Has no purpose. Can't really help in the end. Correction helps me. Laughter and pats on the back and you're fine, you're good. Doesn't help. Doesn't help my character, doesn't help my good name, doesn't help me attach to the necessity of God's grace. It gives me self-confidence. All we're doing is partying, laughing. I think that's all that the world is. I think that's what happiness is, if that's my only experience. It's valueless. And that's why he says it's vanity. It's meaningless in the end. He continues in verse 7 and 8, another set. He says, surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bride corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patience in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Again, perspective, and look at how he puts these perspectives into our understanding. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness. Why would the wise be upset about oppression? It's not fair. It's not how God has designed things. And so when they see oppression, they're rightly so. Speak against it. Strive against it. And they don't participate in that oppression. Because that advantage is to, uh, excuse me, verse uh, 7 still, surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bride corrupts the heart. A bribe corrupts the heart. Did I say bride? Oh. Thankfully, Sarah's in uh, nursery today, so she won't hear this. A bribe. Oh, my goodness, I cannot say it. Please said bribe. So, a bribe. A bride enlightens the heart. A bribe corrupts the heart. Again, a bribe leads to, generally, oppression. And when there's oppression, you can definitely see a cycle of, well, how did they get to that place? Well, so-and-so paid someone off, or so-and-so is using their power to exert it over someone else. And so, obviously, patience, understanding, is far better than oppressing or taking a bribe. Better in the end is a thing than in the beginning, and the patience in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. It's a beautiful way of saying that person who is all about themselves is all about themselves. Rarely dependable, rarely God-honoring, rarely someone you want to emulate with their character. Whereas the person who sees the oppression, sees the bribery, sees all this happening, they are patiently waiting through it. Again, 
And we make a switch now. In verse 9, we've done all the comparison and contrast, A, B, already. And now we're looking at the warnings. And verse 9 gives us the first warning. Verse 9 says, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. There are so many verses in Scripture about controlling anger, controlling it. Anger, the emotion of anger, is in and of itself not sinful. It's not sinful. There is good, righteous anger. And that's anger towards sin. Anger towards attacking God's revealed character. Attacking what God says is good and calling it evil and calling what's evil good. There can be righteous anger, just like Christ did when he was walking through the temple and saw everyone just bartering and basically bribing and stealing other people of their hard-earned income to purchase animals for sacrifice. He saw all the money changers and he went berserk in a godly way. He turned over the table and said, you've turned my father's house into a house of thieves and dens, a house that is corrupt. You're misusing and misabusing things. And he spoke that way and he was righteous in his anger. God is angry towards sin. He's angry toward disbelief. He's angry towards the perversion of his truth. And we can also have that same righteous anger. But let's not fool ourselves. I think it is hard for us to make that differentiation between righteous anger, that is godly, and anger of hate and sin. And we sometimes, I think, we confuse the two very easily because we are sinful beings and we can be confused easily when it comes to things like this. And so we have to be careful, and that's why Solomon says it, be careful about anger. Don't quickly run to that. And I think we've all had friends and maybe ourselves that quick-tempered person, that person you know, they have a short fuse. If I mention this word, or if I mention <clears throat> the Raiders, whoa, all of a sudden, you just went nuclear on us. Why? And you're the same way. South, East, Centennial. There's another one, right? Central. Did I say Central. So, I mean, we all have those moments where we can be quickly flashed to join the mob and be angry and upset. And then we are what are we upset about? I don't remember. And so Solomon says it's far better to be patient, slow to get to that point, than to be known as a person who is a fool and they cannot control their emotions. And before you say, Tim, sometimes it just gets out of control and I cannot control it, I guarantee you can control it and I'll prove it to you. Thank you for asking that question. <laughs> Personally, I had an experience. I was in a car, and everybody in the car, it was not my family, it was before my family, before I was a Christian, teenager, and we were in the car, and we were just, 
for whatever reason, someone said something and we all started fighting with each other, yelling and just, just going at each other. And I think from the front seat, back seat, we were all kind of throwing little timid punches, but we were shouting at each other. And guess what happens when you're in a car and you start shouting at one another? What's inevitably going to happen? Pulls over the car. Now, I wasn't driving. Another buddy of mine was driving, but he was screaming like you wouldn't believe it. Guess what happened? The moment we pulled over and rolled down the window, we were silent. Within a second, we were able to control all of our anger and outburst because we knew this guy, he's got a little bit more power than us just swinging our fists around from the back seat to the front seat. And we were immediately controlled. Sometimes it doesn't work out that way. I get it. I understand that. But I think we all can relate to a moment in which we were angry and all of a sudden someone else walked into the room or we got that phone call or we noticed somebody and we stopped. See, you can control your anger. You just have to always remember God is always in the front seat of every conversation you're having. He's always there. And not just as an authority figure to bust you, but as a father to lovingly hold you through that temptation. Warning about anger. There's another warning, verse 10, about the past. Now, before you read that verse, and I know I should have said this before, don't look at the verse. Don't look at the verse. Don't look. Have you ever thought, have you ever thought, I wish we did things the way we used to do it? You ever? And I'm not talking about church because you would never think that in a church environment. But outside of church, man, I really wish we used to do it the way we used to do it. We, uh, we voted this week. And boy, I miss going to an election poll physically and voting physically. I miss that. I wish we used to do it that I wish we did that again. I, I do. There's a lot of things that I wish. I wish that the McRib sandwich from McDonald's, was always on the menu. Never go away. I just lost a lot of respect with some of you. I understand that. I'm okay. Let's go back to the way it used to be. And he didn't hear that. But verse 10, say not, or don't say this. Okay, this is a warning. Don't think this, say this. Why were the former days better than these for it is not from wisdom you ask this. Why can't we go back to the good old days? Yeah, I like these days. I like modern medicine. I don't want to go back to the good old days. I like modern transportation. I would be terrible at trying to hook up a horse to the stuff and then ride behind it. I would be terrible at the good old days. I like the fact that I can walk into the house, pre-walk into it with an app and get the heat and air conditioning going in the house. I love that. I love going to a refrigerator and pulling out cold milk. I love modern conveniences. I also like modern translations. I could not handle if we had a read out of the Greek and Hebrew every time we wanted to go to Scripture. I could not handle going to the King James only version and trying to thee-thou myself through some of those verses. I love the modern language. I love things that are modern. 
Have you seen how some of the people dressed 200 years ago? Oh my goodness, I love the invention of polyester and cool materials. I would have, hate to have to wear wool all the time. I love the fact that all of you, all of you, smell good. <laughs> all right? I don't want to go back to the way it used to be. But Solomon is not just talking about modern technologyism. He's talking about Okay, here's where it hits. How many have wanted to go back to grade school and do it all over with what you know now? Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't care for the grade school days, but if I knew now what I know, if I know now, if I knew then what I know now, oh man, I could do it so much differently. I mean, I would be investing in Apple and Microsoft immediately before they even got off the ground. And Google and Amazon, same thing, even though all those can tend to be negative words politically. But the person who dwells in the past is no good for the present. A person who is always wishing it was different the way it used to be is no good today. And that is Solomon and God's warning, is that you need to be a person for today. Not for what was, but for today, because today is different. And tomorrow will always be different than today. And to be depressed and then angry that it's not the same way it used to be. If you're living in the past, you're no good for the present. He continues, and we're going to do some of these pretty quick. Uh, another warning, a warning against extremes, verse 15 through 18. So we're bumping down to 15 through 18. Another warning. In my vain life, I have seen everything. This is Solomon speaking. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who belongs his life or, or prolongs his life in evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is no good, or it is good, that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. There is an extreme on both ends of the spectrum. Now, when he's speaking of righteousness, I think we have a good understanding of the person who believes that they are self-righteous. I remember, and there is nothing more challenging to a pastor than someone who has just graduated seminary. Because someone who has just graduated seminary knows everything there is to know about Scripture. Uh, someone who has been married a year really thinks they know about marriage. And, you know, we, we've probably experienced everything. I've been married 30 years, and I'm learning brand new experiences every single day, usually due to my own fault. But the person who believes they already know the answer, they've got it all figured out, that their way of living is perfectly righteous before God can become very judgmental. Very judgmental. That if you're not doing it their way through their knowledge and their experience, you are wrong and you're sinning. It's just as bad as the person who just lives their life as a fool. 
God doesn't call us to those extremes. God calls us to the steady, narrow path of walking behind him. Now he walks in holiness, and that's perfect holiness. And he walks in righteousness, which is perfect righteousness. But he does not burden us with extra laws. Nor does he ask us to be fools and discard all truth. Avoid the extremes. Verse 20 and 22, another warning. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you have cursed others. This idea of being oversensitive and over self-righteous. Just don't do that. Don't worry about what other people are saying about you, calling you or not calling you. Be steadfast, steady and steadfast. Uh, we're going through this very, very quick. Uh, 13 and 14. Going back to 13 and 14, we now have some consideration. Consider A, consider this. Listen to verse 13 and 14. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So things going on in your life, good and bad, don't freak out about it. Consider God. He's made both. You mean God's made days of adversity? Absolutely. God's made Days of plenty? Absolutely. I should not freak out and discard my entire understanding of who God is because I have a rough and tough day. Once you start thinking you had a rough and tough day, let's start talking about some examples of people who really had a rough and tough day. What about the day Joseph was beat by his brothers, thrown into a pit, and then sold into slavery? Have you had a day like that? No. What about the day Job had? When he got the announcement, all of his homes were destroyed, all of his flocks were destroyed, all of his children murdered, killed. Have you had a day like that? Let's just go right to the top, right? Let's talk about Jesus. Have you had a day where your best friends publicly betrayed you, denied you, watched you getting beat, watched you being criticized for your faith, watched you being slandered and lied about. How many of you been beaten for your faith? Not because of your actions, but your faith. How many of you have been martyred, nailed to a cross, stripped of your clothes and publicly humiliated, beaten, whipped, mocked? Well... One time they told me I couldn't sit at the good kids' table. I had to sit at the nerd table because I, you know, I mean, we have such small, small experiences of what others have experienced for their faith. And yet God has appointed each of those days. What good are the bad days, though? Bad days rid me of my self-confidence my self-assurance, my self-righteousness, my arrogance, my pride. They reinstill into me the need to fall at the feet of the cross day in and day out. 
consider God. Verse 19, consider the power of wisdom. And verse 23 through verse 8, 1 is all about consider the deception of sin. And we will look at those in depth next week as we also tackle chapter 8. Um, let me close in a word of prayer as the worship team comes up. And I know this abrupt, uh, ended abruptly, but I had great plans of getting through 13 points this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being so gracious and patient with us. Thank you for giving us instructions that we might know how to rightly live before your throne, that we might be able to rightly cry out to you in times of need and in times of plenty. Father, make us wise. Make us people who apply your word in spite of what the world might tell us that you don't even exist. Father, you are our God and we are your people. We trust in you. And we acknowledge your greatness. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. amen.